Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, warnings of a public health emergency and a rise in excess winter deaths, unless the government takes action to help people deal with rising energy prices. The NHS Confederation, which represents health service bosses in England, Wales and Northern Ireland, says that with annual energy bills rising to £3,600 a year from October before rising again in April, more people will be forced to choose between heating and eating. And they say this will lead to more illness and, quote, intolerable pressure on frontline NHS staff. We'll be hearing from Dr Sonia Adesera, who is a GP in London, and the Byline Times Chief Social Affairs reporter, Sean Norris. Before that, a quick reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to our brilliant monthly newspaper. And I've got the latest hard copy here. I hope you can hear me rattling it about because it's packed with brilliant articles, many of them exclusive to the print edition. We can report without fear or favour and hold the rich and the powerful to account because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So please subscribe to the Byline Times if you can. You get more details on our website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Let's start then with Dr. Sonia Adesera. And Sonia, just describe the situation at the moment in terms of the pressure on frontline NHS staff like yourself in terms of how people are dealing with the cost of living now. Yeah, so I think it's important to know that actually many families are already really, really struggling. Um, so I work in North London and look, I can tell you about a um, someone I was speaking to this week and I was I just said to her, you know, just make sure you're having food when you take your medication because it's important that you don't take it on an empty stomach. And then she told me that she that she's struggling to afford food right now. Um, and that just really struck me, the, the, the situation that we're in, that we have people in this country, we have families who are struggling to pay for food. And um, we know that one already one in three families are struggling to pay their bills, their food bills, their energy bills. Um, and with, with everything going up, with inflation right now, with food prices going up, with the energy bills set to increase in October, we're looking about at millions, millions of households being pushed into poverty and destitution and not being able to feed themselves, not being able to heat their homes, not being able to afford things like prescriptions to, you know, keep themselves healthy. And I think that's it's it's it is terrifying. And, you know, the scale of this problem is is huge. Um and I think just the lack of um the lack of anything from the government right now is 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 really shocking and really terrifying. And um we need action, you know, right now because we're talking about potentially tens of thousands or more than that people becoming sick and being um, admitted to hospital this winter because of because of their living conditions are making them unwell. Um, and that's completely preventable. You know, it's a political decision to not intervene. Um, and it's really shocking that we're allowing this to happen in Britain today. The NHS Confederation is not a body that is normally associated with radical calls to action. These are people at the top of the NHS, people who've worked their way up a, a very kind of greasy political ladder and have had to be careful all along the way to kind of not rock the boat too much. So something tells me that if the NHS Confederation is making this kind of warning, then really ministers do need to sit up and take notice. 
Yeah, I think it shows the extent of how worried health workers are about the cost of living crisis and the impact that that has on health for them to make this statement. It, it is a it is a unusual statement for, for them to make. Um, but it's because we're seeing this every day. You know, we're seeing in my clinic, you know, every day I'm having patients talk to me about, you know, struggling to afford their food bills, um, problems with their housing, struggling with their rent, problems with damp in their housing. You know, we're seeing the impact that li- poor living conditions and, and diff- difficult social conditions are having on people's health. We're seeing that and we're seeing that's a worsening problem. Um, and I guess what's particularly worrying is that we're having children now who are gro- who will be growing up in poverty, who won't be having nutritious foods, um, who may be growing up in cold housing. And the impact that has not, you know, not only on things like education and their life chances, but the long term impact that that has on their health is, you know, is, is massive. Um, and again, you know, this, this is a, this is something that actually has been happening for the past few years. You know, we know that over the past decade, we know that the number of children being admitted to hospital with breathing problems has been increasing. And and it's and the the, the research says that it's that's a combination of, of um, you know, poor air quality, but also poor housing and poor nutrition. So we're already seeing the impact of poverty and declining living conditions as having on people's health, particularly on children's health. Um, and that's set to escalate rapidly if we don't have intervention now. And Sean, that chimes with a podcast you and I made a few months ago with Chris mm. Thomas from the IPPR think tank. And really, we're talking about a slow motion crisis developing here, aren't we? Right back to 2010 and the introduction of austerity, when the NHS did continue to get above inflation increases in funding, but below the traditional level of increased funding and below the level needed to cope with the ever more complex needs of our ageing population. Ever since 2010, we have seen effectively a real terms cut in NHS spending. Ministers are keen to pin many of these problems on the pandemic or more latterly now on the war in Ukraine. But really, the problems for the NHS do date back to the election of the coalition government in 2010. Yes, absolutely. I think whenever we have these conversations, we need to be having a conversation about austerity. Things haven't just happened out of nowhere and they definitely didn't start with the pandemic, although obviously the pandemic has exacerbated issues. I mean, if you look at the data, um, the annual increases to NHS funding um, fell to less than 1% under the 2010 coalition government and it crept up to just under 2% before 2019. It then did go up um, during the pandemic for obvious reasons. You compare that to Labour when the annual increases were 6%. So there was a much greater investment in the NHS. And I think it, this is all combining as well. We've got an ageing population. We have a staffing crisis. There was a report today, I think 160,000 social care vacancies. When you don't have people providing social care, when there isn't a strong social care system, System. This means that people are left in hospital for longer than perhaps they need to be or perhaps it's healthy for them. And so that creates pressure as well. But I also just wanted to pick up a little bit on something Sonia said about children, because I think it's one of the sort of big misunderstandings about fuel poverty and cold homes. It's not just about the physical health that it impacts, it's the mental health as well. And there's data from the 2011 Marmot Review that found that 
one in four teenagers that live in cold houses are at risk of experiencing multiple mental health problems. And this compares to one in 20 who live in warm housing. And the reason I bring this up is because it still fits into this austerity narrative, this issues around the NHS. We have been creating long-term health problems through a lack of investment in health, through a lack of investment in housing, through a lack of investment in tackling poverty. And so if you think those were the statistics in 2011, those young people, those children are now adults and they'll have health problems, they'll have mental health problems that have been allowed to develop, which again creates this pressure on the NHS. Whereas if we'd invested in like warm housing, if we'd invested in proper healthcare, if we'd invested in a mental health infrastructure, perhaps we wouldn't be seeing some of the crises that are all coming to boil today. Mm. And Sonia, I've observed in these broadcasts before that the NHS, not only has it been in crisis since uh, 2010, arguably, and and then obviously increasingly since 2019 with the pandemic, uh, alongside that is a kind of political blindness to it, in a way, that when we talk about the cost of living crisis, that is perhaps creeping into the Conservative leadership debate but it's framed in terms of who's going to cut tax most. But the NHS crisis has been present for years and has got worse, and yet none of the main political parties, in England anyway, seem to be treating it as that. It it is not something that is front and centre of our political debate, but the pressures that you describe and the pressures that I've witnessed, having seen family members in hospital recently, said that this is a serious and ever-deepening crisis that should be an absolute priority for every political party. Yeah, and it is really infuriating um, for those of us that work in the NHS because we have been talking about this for years now and the problems didn't start with the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, year on year, we were seeing the situation in the NHS get worse. We saw waiting times get worse. We saw cancer to people waiting for cancer treatment get worse. We saw people waiting for time that they took waiting in A&E to get treatment get worse. We saw ambulance waiting times get worse. Year on year on every single measure, the situation in the healthcare system has got worse. And this summer, you know, normally, the summer supposed to be the quiet time for the NHS and this summer in you know in our local hospitals I can tell you my local hospital they they had to go on black alert and that means that they didn't have enough beds and they had to go into crisis mode um there was a there was a case today which your listeners may have heard of a elderly gentleman waiting a, a, a just a horrific number of hours for an ambulance. Um, One of our family friends, you know, actually ended up dying a couple of one or two months ago um, because she was getting chest pain and it took hours before the ambulance came. And then, of course, you know, she was having a heart attack. So if you don't get early treatments for things like heart attack, it does increase your risk of becoming, you know, of of dying. Um, so it is really shocking, and those of us working in it just are seeing this, are seeing the 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 degradation in the in our healthcare service, and also you know just things like the you know we, we, emergency care is becoming a worsening problem, but also routine care. So I've got a, a gentleman who I've been I've been trying to look after, and I've been referring him, I referred him about a year and a half ago now to the hospital to get the care that he needs, and he's still waiting for that specialist treatment. And in that time, he's becoming more debilitated. He um, is becoming more housebound because his condition is getting worse. So we have this worsening problem as well of people who are living with health conditions, with chronic conditions, who are not getting the care that they needed. Um, and their health is their health is deteriorating. Um, and that impacts their mental health, it impacts their ability to work, it impacts the ability to engage in society. So it's just this, this escalating problem. And and I guess the leadership debate, the Tories leadership debate, 
they've said absolutely nothing on the NHS apart from just bonkers statements from both of them about, you know, charging people for missed missed appointments, which is just such a ridiculous thing to say because it, it, you know, it's, it won't won't bring in money and it doesn't really make sense to the policy. Um, so it, you know, it is quite shocking that we just they just don't seem to to understand the problem, the scale of the problem in our NHS, and they don't have a plan either. Um, and yes, we're just sort of sleepwalking into another crisis this winter. Yeah, and the story that you refer to, Sonia, in case people haven't seen it, on the front page of the Mirror today, talking about an 87-year-old retired welder, David Wakeley, suffering from prostate cancer. And he had a 15-hour wait for an ambulance, and he lay shivering, I'm quoting from the Mirror here, in a makeshift tent on a rain-swept concrete floor. So there was a a, a tent put up for him, basically. A a football goal was laid on its side, and it was then covered with some kind of sheeting and umbrellas to keep the rain off him after he had fallen. And an ambulance took 15 hours to arrive. To go back to the Mm. political debate, uh, Sonia, one thing that has puzzled me, and uh, I've mentioned this to my colleague Adam Bienkoff, and I still haven't seen this addressed by any of the political questions in the various hustings for Truss and Sunak. Liz Truss says that if she's elected Prime Minister, she would reverse Rishi Sunak's national insurance contribution increase, which was introduced earlier this year. Now, Rishi Sunak introduced that with the promise that long term that would fund social care improvements so that people didn't have to sell their houses when they're when they're seriously ill when they're older and when they need care uh, there would be a cap on the amount of money you'd have to pay in the short term that national insurance increase was going to be used to clear the nhs backlog which had grown during the pandemic now it's very well to appeal to the Tory base and say, well, we're going to reverse that tax increase. What happens then to NHS waiting lists? What then happens to social care, which, if it isn't dealt with, creates the bed blocking, which in turn creates more problems for the NHS? Well, absolutely, it's 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 a, it's a mess, you know. Liz, I it, it's it feels to me as if this this leadership debate is happening in a in a alternative universe. Like you, you're completely right. What happens? NHS waiting lists get worse. Our NHS goes further into crisis. People will become sick and people will die as a result. You had, you know, just like that, you know, it's pretty, it's, it's disgusting that what well, that case of this elderly gentleman being left for hours on the street shivering. It's disgusting. We should all be. We should all be so angry that this is happening in this country um, and yes Liz, Liz, Liz Truss's proposals will make the situation worse um, and I think you know I guess we need to see to ask ourselves you know healthcare does cost money um, um, and as a percentage of GDP we, we spend less on healthcare than many other developed countries um, but we do healthcare does cost we need to invest in healthcare and I think if we believe that people should be looked after and cared for when they are sick and when they're unwell and when they are elderly, then that is going to cost money. Um, and I think that should be a priority in a civilised society. Um, I, I, I just I, I cannot explain to you Liz Truss's ideas because they just they make compl- they just don't make sense to me at all. Um, so what she I think she suggested today about charging people for GP appointments, which is, again, the most such a stupid policy, because, of course, the people that that it means that people on low incomes 
poor people, more vulnerable people, elderly people won't be able to access a GP. Um, and then Rishi Sunak's policy was about charging people for missed appointments. Again, such a stupid policy because the cost of putting in those charging mechanisms into the into the NHS will be more than the amount of money that we can get back from a policy like that. And also missed appointments, I can tell you the majority of time, my patients that miss appointments are normally people that are quite elderly, so they can't get to the appointment um, or they have mental health issues or other issues going on. So they're, they're to be honest, my most vulnerable patients that need care um, who would be who would be impacted by that so you know the, the, the only two policies that we've had from from the Tory leadership proposals both of them have been completely stupid um, and just do not understand the massive massive problems that we have in our NHS right now which to be honest I think the whole country can see the problems apart from it seems like the Tory party right now. Sean? Yes, absolutely. As um, Sonia says, it feels like they're living in this alternate universe. I mean, and I think just sort of moving slightly away from the NHS and the related cost of living crisis, it's a similar kind of thing. We're we're hearing from the government, oh, well, we're going to give people £400 or we're going to give the poorest families £650. If your energy bills are going to go up to £4,200 in January, that money isn't going to touch the sides. And I think it really illustrates a sort of lack of empathy and a lack of understanding of how people live their lives, like what the reality of fuel poverty is for a family. I feel we do have this real problem, and I know it's kind of been said many, many times, but they are so distant. They are so detached from what it is when you are trying to count out, the, you know, the final little bit of money that you have to scrape together. I spoke to someone yesterday who told me about a mother she was supporting who is living on toast. You know, she has toast for dinner because she can't afford to buy proper meals for herself. And if she's going to feed her child, she's going to make sure any food that she does have goes to the child and she'll just survive on toast. We're the sixth richest country, biggest economy in the world. And we have mothers surviving on toast for dinner because they cannot afford to feed both themselves and their child what does that then do for health you know this mother is going to be suffering from health potential health problems because she can't afford to eat properly and I think one of the scariest things that I've read in the sort of link between the cost of living crisis and health is that uh, teachers are reporting children coming into school with stomach bugs because they're getting food poisoning because their parents are turning the fridge off because they can't afford to run the fridge overnight I mean this is this is madness. What, and what's the political response to that? Children are going into school sick because their parents can't afford to keep the fridge on. And we're being told, oh, you know, we'll just cut taxes, we'll cut corporation tax. What's cutting corporation tax going to do to that mum who's living off toast? I just, it's, I, I get so angry about it because, because, you know, this is people's lives and it's people's healths and it's the future. It's, if you have children growing up in poverty, the impact of that on their physical and mental health is so huge. We know there is a big correlation between deprivation, issues around self-harm, issues around um, depression and anxiety. And this, yeah, there's this parallel universe where corporation tax is probably going to solve all our problems. I mean, it's bizarre. Uh, Sonia, I saw a report today suggesting that the Office of Budget Responsibility is shortly to issue an update on the state of the UK's finances. And they will effectively tell Liz Truss, assuming she is the next prime minister, that there is no money, that really the money that she had earmarked for potential tax cuts just isn't there. Presumably, the money isn't there either for the massive transfusion of cash that I suspect you would argue the NHS needs. What are we going to do? I think we need to be having a conversation as a country about wealth and how we tax wealth in this country. So, you know, as as we 
the majority of people in this country would have seen their wages stagnate over the past few years, would have seen their living conditions get worse over the past few years. But of course, we've seen um, for um, the very, very wealthiest in, the, in society, they've seen their wealth increase at significant amounts in recent years. Um, you know, for the big corporations, we've, they've seen since 2020, a 35% increase in profit. So, you know, the money is there, but it's just it's just a question about how that money is distributed. Um, and I guess I would argue that, you know, I want as I want to live in a society where people are cared for, where we don't have children going up in poverty, where we don't have children going into going into school sick, where we don't have elderly getting admitted to hospital because they can't they can't afford to warm their homes. Um, and if that means taxing the wealthiest in our society more, if that means taxing corporations and big profits more, if that means introducing policies such as rent caps, you know, I think all of these things need to be done. Um, it's about, you know, it's about what type of society do we want to live in? And, and for me, it's like I want to live in a civilized society where people are cared for and looked after. Um, so, you know, the money is there. Of course, the money is there. We are an extremely wealthy country. But the question is of, of how that money is distributed and what is our priorities and are we prioritizing the right things in this country sonia thanks very much indeed we'll let you go but great to speak to you thank you that's uh, dr sonia adasara who is a, a gp in north london and as you can tell a very active campaigner in the field of the nhs as well great to hear from you uh, sean stay with us because underlying this there is clearly that political decision-making and it's mm. likely that we're going to get the kind of things that Sonia suggests from either Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss. Although in fairness, we should say that earlier this year, the government did give, I think it was a £650 mm. pay for the people on universal benefits. I mean, there has been some assistance to the people who are worst off in society. Of course, any anything is better than nothing. And it is good that they have recognised that there is a problem and that their money should be given to the people who are most in need. But I also think we need to put this into some context. So, as I said, you know, in January, it's predicted energy bills are going to go up to £4,200 a year, £650, um, I think it's over uh, four months or it's staggered anyway, um, is, is not necessarily well, it's definitely not going to cover the full cost of those energy bill rises. The other thing that we need to remember is that in October last year, Rishi Sunak um, cut universal credit for new claimants, so people who had joined the benefits since the beginning of the pandemic. There was an uplift of £20 a week, and in October they cut that, and the cut was worth around £1,000 for a family. So, you know, again, it's like you've had your benefits cut, and then you're given this extra £650, but that's still not the value of what you've lost. I think um, there's a pledge as well, isn't there, for an additional £1,200 as well. I think that was the first tranche. That was announced in the budget in May, mm -hmm. when the government has now pledged £1,200 to the most vulnerable households. But, yes. you know, at the start of this conversation, we were talking about annual fuel bills of 3600 rising to 4200 As you say, it... it Anything is better than nothing, and it will yeah. make a dent in, in your annual fuel bill. But the reality is that even the most poor people in our society will be paying significantly more from their already meagre income yeah. on basics, on, on heating and lighting. I mean, absolutely. If you look at the benefit cap, and obviously the benefit cap, you know, there's, I think it's £20,000 for outside of London. And obviously people who are on the benefit cap may have other sources of income. They may be on low wages, you know, but there's also like that's going to be nearly a fifth of someone's income is going to go on on energy bills. Like 
that's just a huge amount of money. And I also think like, while I am, you know, positive that these interventions are happening, yes, we need um, cash injections to people who are really vulnerable. I think what's really frustrating to watch is it's always this reaction, reaction, reaction. Oh, we'll give £650. Oh, we'll give some, oh, we'll, we'll set up um, a council tax energy rebate. Oh, we'll do like a winter homes payment. We'll do, it's always like, we, we just got to do something quickly as opposed to thinking about what are the structural issues in place around poverty, fuel poverty, rising energy prices, the huge amounts of profits being made by the sort of big energy, um, you know, the sort of shells and BPs of the world. Like there's not a structural response. It's always this kind of quick reaction and then getting caught out when it's not enough. And we actually, and as part of this is because we have this kind of missing in action government right now, you know, Boris Johnson saying he's not going to do anything until the new prime minister comes in. It's like, well, okay, so we don't have a prime minister. Like, um, you know, there's, there, there needs to be really serious action, really long-term structural thinking, and not just these very quick responses that, that sort of feel a bit panicky and a bit like, oh, we must do something. How about £650? How does that sound? And sorry. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. You know, I, I, just as you were speaking there, I just wanted to make a point, really, that in terms of those big structural issues, you know, you underlying this is a demand for imported energy from this mm-hmm. country. That has left us vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And it's not as that. I mean, those of us who, I was a kid, but those of us who remember Britain's reliance on oil and the oil shock of the mm-hmm. 1970s will know how foolish it is for any nation to leave itself open to blackmail from other nations, as we effectively mm-hmm. are or have been to Russia for many years. So growing your energy independence has got, it seems to me, to be the sensible goal of any government. That's not party political. That's just common sense. But we have Liz Truss talking about scrapping the green fuel levy, which is mm. intended to uh, to s- stimulate investment in green energy. She wants to cut fuel bills by removing that element of them, not the bit that goes in shareholder dividends, of course, yeah, yeah. or bonuses to the bosses, but the bit that actually helps develop our fuel independence. Rishi Sunak has kind of jumped on that bandwagon as well. Rishi Sunak has said we want to have fields for farms and not for solar panels but if those solar panels can help develop our energy independence which means that the government isn't having to tax people in order to enable the poorest people in society or even not even the poorest anymore to heat their homes surely that's got to be a good thing I also think it's, yeah, absolutely. First of all, we're we're in a climate crisis. You know, we're not just in a cost of living crisis. We're not just in an NHS crisis. We're not just coming out of a coronavirus crisis. We also have the climate crisis. And we've all felt that this last week, you know, being either boiling hot in our homes or dealing with flooding on the streets. And I think, you know, this idea that suddenly green energy is the enemy is quite concerning when we absolutely need to have better energy independence. When things like solar, when things like wind, I mean, you know, I know it's controversial, but even investment in things like nuclear could give us a bit more independence. But also, I think there's there's this sort of bizarre. I've, where has this solar panel hatred come from? I mean, I it seems to be quite a new sort of like problem that they're bringing up and this idea that it's like losing farmland to solar panels is just not necessarily true like solar panels on farmland as i understand it is like one way of diversifying farmers incomes and this was like something that was talked about in the national food strategy which was only released a couple of months ago but which seems to have been you know forgotten or ignored again and so i just yeah i completely agree that 
you know, it's not just structural issues about healthcare, about poverty. It's also about how we think about energy and how we think about the future and that how that also leads to us tackling and responding to the climate crisis in a sustainable way. And it's, you know, the climate crisis isn't going away. It's quite concerning that it's suddenly become this kind of culture war issue as opposed to a massive international crisis that we need to have, be having a grown-up conversation about. Yeah, well, well, I mean, I'm sure people at Byline Times have written about this, and we may explore that at another point, the way in which climate denialism is funded by dark money, very often from the United States, very often from people linked to fossil fuels. But suffice to say, that agenda is out there, and sometimes it, it, perhaps the people like Sunak, like Trust, may not even realise that they're playing to that agenda, that they're dancing to that tune. But there are people out there very much pushing the climate denial agenda. Mm. Sometimes it will be in more obvious ways. But on other occasions, it can manifest as, oh, yeah, we don't want these ugly wind turbines yeah. scarring the landscape. We don't want these solar panels scarring the landscape. Well, it's, it's a moot point whether they scar the landscape. Some people might see wind turbines as rather beautiful, as I do. But in any event, if the alternative is people starving because they can't afford to eat their food yeah. or dying early dying earlier than they might otherwise do because they can't afford to heat their homes, then it's a daft argument, isn't it, really? Absolutely. People first. I mean, just to reiterate, 10,000 people a year in the UK die because of cold homes. I mean, that's a huge number. Yeah. Like people, 10,000 people are dying because they're too cold. And it's, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. There's, There's no reason for someone to die in the UK in 2022 because they're too cold. There's just, it's just not acceptable. There's no reason for that. Just as a side issue as well, I'll bring Brenda in in a moment who wants to join our conversation, but uh, you're rattling a few of my cages now. I I just knew the other day when there was a front page article in the Daily Mail about do we need to put L-plates on cyclists? Front page of the Daily Mail, an absurd idea that only about 10 people in the country care about. But what a wonderful distraction from the mess that we're in as a country at the moment. And how predictable then that radio phone-ins, many of them on the BBC, would then jump on the bandwagon of that nonsensical, non-debate, playing the government's game. Now, they're not deliberately playing the government's game, but they're being merrily led down the wrong path. And you just need journalism that stands firm and says, by the way, these are the things that matter. Cyclists are not killers, generally. Cold homes sadly are. Now, make that your daily phoning. Right, rant over. Let's bring Brenda in. Hello, Brenda. How are you doing? Uh, I'm very interested in hearing what you're saying because uh, we have a Twitter space called Listen to Her Voice, which is based in Belfast every Wednesday night. And we're concentrating on educating people on what a high conflict personality is, what a pathocracy is. And at the moment, we're pushing the word democide. Democide is when a government kills its population through neglect. And um, there's different ways of doing it, but one of them is through neglect by enforcing policies that leads to the death of its citizens. So maybe consider having a little piece on that. Um, Yeah, one of the reasons why I wanted to let you know is 
We have one of the biggest hospitals in Belfast called the Royal Victoria Hospital, the Children's Hospital. Um, we had a conversation a few weeks ago with a paediatric consultant, Julianne Manny, and she has informed us they've been told to put in place strategies for a spike in infant death and poverty-related illnesses in children. Um, she said they're already seeing it, not so much with the death-related, uh, poverty-related deaths, but they're seeing it with malnutrition and poverty-related um, abuse and neglect. She says a lot of it isn't neglect, willful neglect. It's because people just do not have the means to provide their children with everything they need. Um, obviously, we're in Northern Ireland, so we have no functioning government at the moment. Uh, the Tories are, are pandering to the DUP. So any uplift or payment to our citizens will not get to us directly. It will have to go via Westminster because our devolved government has been shut down by the DUP due to the protocol. But it, um, I mean, presumably, though, I, I appreciate that that's... Uh, rather more than annoying but is the the reality is though presumably that the benefits that have been promised the cost of living upgrades are still available in northern ireland in what respect so if you're on universal credit for example and you've been offered the what was earlier this year the 650 pound payments or now the 1200 pound payments that's been granted by the westminster government people in northern ireland will still receive that despite the lack of a functioning government in yeah, well, westminster's trying to figure out how to actually get that to the people here um i think it's also quite misleading when people say it's a 1200 pound payment because it's working out that it's going to be paid at 69, 67, 69 pounds a month. Mm-hmm. So anybody who wants to fill their oil tank or put a large amount of money onto their gas or settle their, or have a very large direct debit, we're seeing people whose direct debits have spiralled out of control um, to pay off a large bill. It's not actually going to be, you know, and we, you know, they're saying it's help. We all know that it's not help. We all know that they're funneling more government money into the pockets of these fossil fuel corporations um, and pretending that they're helping people in doing so. We know that. But we're actually seeing headway in the space that we're using and in some other spaces that are discussing it. People are starting to click on just exactly how the system is working and how the people are being bled dry. We have the longest waiting list in the UK here in the north of Ireland and we're seeing increasingly the amount of people having to take out private loans to pay for operations because they're living in desperate pain. I, I recognise that the waiting lists are worse in Northern Ireland but that, that thing that you've just mentioned of people having to take out loans in order to be seen by consultants for example in some cases to jump the NHS queue then once they've got a diagnosis or in other cases to have an operation privately because it's the only way they can get it in a timely fashion that is sadly happening all over the UK and that's even before this that's even before this spike in energy prices brenda i tell you what you ought to do is tag me in at goldberg radio about your space and i'll try and listen to it on uh, wednesday and encourage other people to do so can i just make one more point before i go Um, we're actually we're actually taking proactive action um it's not an organization as such it is a group of women-based organizations you know yourself when it comes to community-based organizations child-based organizations, women's interests, women are disproportionately affected by poverty. So the organizations are banding together 
they will be going to Stormont in September and they will be making demands and we expect those demands to be seen through. But we must, must have Stormont up and running because we can't allocate budgets in the meantime. Thank you. Brenda in Belfast. Uh, Sean, you and I have spoken about this before, but I think it's a point well worth repeating that Brenda has made there about the disproportionate effects of austerity and poverty on women and children. Yes, you know, that's my my big, big issue. I mean, when you look at the history of austerity, it is so stark at how the cost disproportionately fell on women. I think it was something like 87% of the cost of the cuts came out of women's purses, which was the labour research. I also think, you know, one of the big sort of issues around poverty at the moment is the impact on single parents. I think nearly half of all single parent led families are now living in poverty and around 90% of single parent headed families are headed by women. So we have this really, really big issue where women are more likely to be in poverty. They're more likely to be in low paid or precarious work. And and I think we have to talk about the gendered nature of poverty. We have to talk about why it is that women are, are more likely to be poor and why it is that mothers are more likely to be poor and the impact that that has on their children. You know, um, And I think what's really interesting is we know this from an international development perspective. We talk a huge amount in international development about the economic empowerment of women, of making sure that women have access to um, income, access to work, all of these things. But we sort of don't talk about it in the UK. It's almost as if we're a little bit embarrassed by it or we think, oh, well, that's a problem for other countries but we've got it sorted and you know poverty has a female face all around the world and the UK is not an exception to that. Let's bring Francesca into the conversation. Hello Francesca. Um, Sorry for interrupting. One of the reasons I thought I'd sort of wail in is because I've just finished my children's trust fuel poverty training which we've just had to do. So just to throw some statistics at the room Your recommended living room temperature is 21 degrees C. Your minimum temperature you can be at with no health risks, though you might feel cold, is 18 degrees C. To go back to the NHS is about to have a big problem, your resistance to respiratory diseases is diminished from 16 degrees C and below. And we have both flu season and the COVID spike due. You have an increased blood pressure and risk of cardiovascular disease between 19 to 12 degrees C and a high risk of hypothermia at five. And as Brenda said, and as Sean has said, this is, I wouldn't say a predominantly female problem, but it is affecting the families that we see. We've already seen an increase of referrals before the school went off, the schools went off for new families on what the schools thought were neglect cases. But when it's been started to be unpicked and it's started to be dug into, it's not neglect. It's just that there's no money. Uh, And the Children's Trust is is a charity, I think, that deals with children with brain injury predominantly is that right Francesca? No I'm a I work for a children's trust that's in social care where where children's no it's all right where it's it's where children's social care has been removed from the local authorities and it's run as an independent entity but funded Uh by both. Yeah so are are you a social worker? I'm a support staff. Yeah um so I in some ways get to see I get to see what all my social workers get to deal with Mm. I get to see what we get in from the PPNs. In, in, in an odd way, I get an odd bird's eye view of the whole thing. What's a PPN? A uh, police protection notice. Right, okay. So yeah. you get 
police protection notices are coming from the from the police saying we think you should sue this family because such and such happened and a child either we get them if a child is present or if there is a child in the in the family even if they weren't present for the incident so we get those we get the school referrals that come in we get the requests for early intervention all the way through to tier three support which is strengthening families and then tier four which is where you need a full social worker you need all hands on deck everybody's in mm-hmm. that's when that's when you're the fifth emergency service even though as social care we're the ones nobody really wants to see <laughs> yeah. well no, i mean you've said two things that really strike accordingly one is that you're having this training at all which suggests that government knows and local authorities know that we're gearing up for a really tough time ahead and the other thing was that what appears to be neglect by parents can simply be born of desperation born out of poverty and children through no ill will on the part of their parents can be getting very ill and showing the signs of neglect even though they haven't been neglected in the conventional sense of that word. Yeah, it is because, of course, the schools will start saying, oh, they're dirty, they, the clothes don't fit, the shoes are worn. It's, it, we think this is, you know, all the signs that would normally, if we weren't in a financial crisis, just be neglect. And then you go back down and you unpick and you discover that they can't afford to put the washing machine on. And maybe the kid's gone to school in last week's clothes because there's no heating. And yeah, it really is at the minute. It's be- already beginning to start even before you throw in what is coming for the NHS. I mean, we're already linking in with partnership organisations. We're already being briefed on things like these are the hardship funds. These are places where if the local authorities can't help, you can go. We know that this is a runaway train that is coming down the track that is going to hit us hard. Mm. Although, I, I know what you're saying. But, the although, although some of me thinks it is a runaway train. The only people who have their hands on the brakes, as it were, are ministers. Ministers could stop that train. They could switch the points and send it off into a a safe direction to follow the rail analogy or pull it to a screeching halt. It would take, by today's standards, what is regarded as radical action to do that in an era when we've got two rivals for the prime ministership effectively arguing over tax cuts. But we could we could deal with this, as we heard from other callers. You know, we are a very wealthy nation. Dr. Sonia Adesera making that point earlier. I think that's one of the things that makes me so angry and, and sad, like genuinely sad, is that that's exactly it. That's exactly it. This is not inevitable. This doesn't have to be happening. And I keep thinking about how we seem to have like catapulted back in time. And you know, when children were dirty, when they didn't, ha- well, then they didn't have enough to eat, when they were living in cold, damp, overcrowded homes. These are things that we associate with a different era, and yet they've the reality for millions and millions of children and millions of parents for the last, you know, few decades, if not longer. And and what we saw when we had these huge social problems before and we had like, you know, what we call Victorian diseases like malnutrition and scurvy appearing in young people and children or polio, you know, we saw a massive, massive investment in public services. We saw the creation of the NHS. We saw a government that said, we are not going to live like we lived before. We are going to change things. We're going to make sure people have housing. We're going to make sure people have health care. We're going to make sure people are not suffering. We're going to do better. 
and and we can do that again there's no reason for us not to do that again and it's just you know what really scares me is that the children who are going into school now with these tummy bugs with these you know issues around nutrition with these and being cold with mental health problems, they're going to grow up as unhealthy adults. They're going to, you know, both physical and mental health issues. And so we're creating another crisis for 10, 20 years down the road. And as opposed to doing something about it now. And I just can't understand why we're not. I just, I just, it, it, it's, it's startling. Brenda wants to come back in. Go on, Brenda. Uh, yeah, just two points. Uh, well, number one, the reason why it's happening is because we, and I, I'm not saying this, I'm saying this in, in a professional sense that we are basically ruled by a government of psychopaths. Um, the second thing I want to say is as someone who lives in a society that has suffered intergenerational trauma, I want to pick up on the point that uh, Sham made. You are looking at long-term mental health, long-term physical health, because the poverty is going to break families. It's going to break mothers. And that trauma filters down into the welfare, the physical and mental welfare of children. So the housing crisis is horrific here in the north, uh, in the north of Ireland. Um, but it's it's extended right across. And we're seeing our food banks running out of food. People who would have contributed can no longer do so because they're struggling to make um, um, meats themselves. So you really do need to take into account the long-term trauma that this is causing. We have... We have a, do have a high suicide rate here. It's the highest in the UK. And we're seeing it starting to climb because people cannot cope. And I think you're going to see that within yeah. your own society. Absolutely. It's a sort of big unspoken issue, I think, the, the sort of mental health implications of poverty and deprivation and particularly the mental health implications for children. It's not something that gets discussed and we really need to... I've, I've, I mean, I have this whole bee in my bonnet that issues around mental health just don't get discussed anyway, but particularly the links with poverty and deprivation, it's just sort of brushed under the carpet or not focused on. Sean, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you. and thanks. Thank you. Oh, Always good to be here. Kind of you. That's very good. Uh, it's been a great discussion. I'm really grateful to everybody who's taking part. Thanks to uh, Dr. Sonia Adesera, who joined us a little earlier on. Thanks to Brenda and Francesca for taking part as well. Please do so again. And thank you to everybody for listening. Just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast and Byline Radio are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It's our brilliant monthly newspaper. The latest edition is just out. It's great. There's loads of stuff in there that you can't get on our website. So I saw a great article about the kind of racial, the really interesting way in which the Tory party appears much more progressive in terms of its ethnic diversity, mm. the number of ministers who are from minority backgrounds. That's written by Hardeep Matharu, the editor of the Byline Times. Just a really interesting insight, particularly given Hardeep's background, which he talks about. That's a really interesting article that's only in the print edition of Byline Times. You've got Peter Jukes, the founder of Byline Times, talking about about the need for pluralism in political debate as an opposition to the polarisation of the kind of Trump and Johnson era in politics. Peter Oborn, a great political diarist, writes an exclusive print-only article as well. For and the if, I, 
could give a, a little push to my piece that's in the print edition because it relates what? so much what? to what we've been talking about what? today. So I was very privileged to go and interview survivors of the Grenfell fire and next of kin of people who died in the Grenfell Tower fire. And for a story, a, a situation that just brings together issues around class, of race, of poverty, of immigration, so many of the things that we've been discussing this afternoon in terms of who gets ignored, what stories don't get told, what populations are sort of don't seem to matter to the political class. I mean, if you have a chance to read that piece, and I know it's terrible to plug my own piece, but I think no, in all, in this all, discussion in all, in is really serious. important. I don't know. I know I was joshing and going, what, what, what? But no, yeah, I mean, and particularly given what you've outlined, absolutely 100%. And, you know, we both, both believe passionately in the Byline Times. This is not just a job. We are honoured and privileged to be able to be part of this enterprise. I certainly feel that. I'm sure you do as well, because it's a, it's a platform where things that matter get discussed. People won't always agree with things that are said. That's fine. We're grown-ups and we can deal with that. But we care about stuff and we care about rooting out corruption and telling stuff honestly as it is based on the facts based on the evidence so do subscribe if you can it does help to fund these broadcasts too go to our website at bylinetimes.com that's at bylinetimes.com thanks very much indeed for listening see you soon now cheers <laughs>